You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. great to be with you this morning. Uh, It's a privilege to stand here. I'm just going to put in a few shameless plugs of my own. I would encourage you to come out tonight um, to hear um, the opportunity that God has brought before us. Um, We've been intentionally vague because we didn't want to do the meeting before the meeting, Uh, but I'll tell you this, it's exciting. It's exciting at what God has um, brought to us, and it also is exciting to be able to vote in new members. We have a number of new people um, who are uh, wanting to be members, and it's very exciting to have those people excited to join our church family. I also want to encourage you to sign up for New Horizons. Uh, very excited for that. I was talking with Annabelle earlier, and I was saying one of the things that I'm really excited about in my new role is to get to know some of our seniors better, because um, every time I get to know you guys, it's awesome. And so I'm really excited for that opportunity, my old job. Um, I was mainly with our young families and our youth, and I love them, and I'm excited to continue to get to know them, but I'm excited to add this um, new opportunity to my plate as well, and part of that's going to be, I can't wait to be at New Horizons and hang out with all of you, so make sure you come out to that. I wanted to say one more thing before we get started. I told the first service this, um, but I thought it was good for us just to acknowledge that this Sunday feels a little bit weird, doesn't it? It feels a little bit different, and that's okay, right? Like last Sunday, I know it was technically our first Sunday without Pastor Ben and Rebecca and their family, um, but it, it felt different because we had a guest speaker in. And so this Sunday, it just feels a little bit more real. And so I just want to know, it's okay. It's okay that things feel weird. It's okay for you to miss Ben and Rebecca and their family. Um, I'm not offended um, because I miss them too, okay? So it's okay um, to miss them. But I also want to encourage you, like Ben exhorted us in his sermon, that let's not miss what God has ahead of us. And some of that stuff we're going to talk about tonight, and it's really, really cool. Um, so let's not miss that by just looking behind. And it's okay to hold both of those tensions well, that we can look forward and still honor the past and be so grateful for what God has done um, in our lives through that amazing family. And so we can be grateful for both. And I want to finally tell you that I am very grateful for you. It is a tremendous and humbling privilege to stand before you as your pastor. And to, I just I see God's love and the love that you guys have so clearly for God in you. And I'm very grateful for that. I see your desire to follow him. I see your willingness to sacrifice and be honest and be real. I've seen your generosity play out so clearly. Um, I see your kindness and how you welcome people into this church. And I just want to say thank you for that. It is a privilege to serve alongside you. And I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that if we remain faithful to God in his word, that he is going to continue to honor that in this church. We've seen God do incredible things, right? The least of which we just saw um, with Steve and Rebecca, how God healed Steve, how God healed Rebecca, how God healed their marriage, how God healed their spiritual life. That's incredible stuff. And that's just one family. 
right? So praise God for all that he's doing and believe that he will continue to do that if we stay obedient to him. Let's pray because I'm excited to tell you the things that God has laid on my heart this morning as I've been studying. Lord, you're so, so good. And we say thank you. God, thank you that you are such a good God. Thank you for the testimony of changed lives, of healed lives. God, thank you for all the people here this morning who have come and they might have a similar um, story. We can all point to things in our lives where we say, yes, God did this in my life. I'm so grateful for how the Lord has healed me or kept me or held me. God, you are so, so good. God, I also pray this morning that we would love just getting to know you. God, that we would be hungry and thirsty to know you as our God, creator, savior, sustainer, better. God, would you help us in these things, Lord? Um, and I just pray that you'd be with us tonight as well. Lord, as we um, move forward as a body, God, would, would we be wise and discerning, looking for your will, um, but willing to act in faith as well. And so we're excited um, for um, the chance to meet tonight and see what you are doing. And so we pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so we are going to talk about the chief end of God, starting from Isaiah 48. But first I want to ask you a question, and the question is this. Who is the uh, most God-centered person you know? Give that some thought for a second. Who's the most God-centered person you know? There's only one right answer, so no pressure. Um, There's only one right answer. The answer is God, right? And yes, I cheated a little bit because God's not just a person, but humanity of Jesus people, um, right? God is the most um, God-centered person, most God-centered being in the universe. And that's what I want us to wrap our minds around this morning. And I want to be honest with you that as I've studied this for, I don't know, the past five, six years, um, it took my, my brain some time to comprehend it when I first started to think about these things. Um, Because it's something that's not often talked about, and yet what I want to show you in Scripture is I think it's very, very clear, this wonderful and beautiful truth about God and who He is. So if you're, say, you know what, Mark, I've got questions, I've got to wrap my head around that, that's okay. Um, Because that's where I was when I was first hearing these things as well. But I would encourage you to look at God's Word and see what it says, because that's what we're going to base our lives off of. So let's look at our text. This is going to be our springboard text for this morning, Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. It says this, For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Have you ever wondered this? Have you ever wondered why God does things? Why God asks? Have you ever wondered what God delights in above everything else? The answer is in our text, right? We see it here so clearly. Look at God. Look at what he says. He says, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. What's God saying there? He's saying, why did God defer his anger? Why is God acting? Was it primary for the Israelites? No. Who was it for? It was for him, right? It's for my name's sake. For the sake of my what? For my praise, I restrain it for 
you. And then he says it again, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? And then here's the key, what does he say? My glory I will not give to another. This is why God acts. And this is what I want to show you today, right? I want to show you in scripture why God does things, why God does the things that he's done in the past and why the things that he's still going to do, why does he do them? What does God delight in above everything else? And that I want to explore the implications of those things as we think about God and what he's called us to do. But before we go there, we need to answer this question first, and that's what is God's glory? Because God's glory is kind of a challenging word to define, isn't it? Um, You've probably heard many definitions of God's glory. Maybe you've got some in your own head right now. But it's challenging to put your finger on and perfectly describe. Uh, Maybe you can think about it this way. Um, Some of you are game people. Are you guys like playing games? Um, I'm not a game person. If you know me, you know I'm a very boring person. Um, It's okay. You can admit it. I'm a boring person, okay? You know that about me. But you game people, you're the fun people, okay? You're the fun people in the church. And so when the fun people in the church are playing games, um, and one of the games that you've probably played if you're a game person is those iterations of games where you have to describe, get someone to say a word without actually saying the word, right? You know what I'm talking about? So if you get, uh, you're playing one of these games and you turn over the card and it's tree, right? And you have to get people to say the word tree without actually saying tree. So what are you going to do? You're going to describe it, right? So you're going to say things like bark, leaves, and then instantly the super competitive people, they've already got that, right? They already know that that is a tree, But what if the word on the card that you turn over is beauty? How are you going to attack that one, game people? How are you going to get people to describe that very quickly? It's a very challenging word to get people to quickly say, yes, I know what that is. Right? Beauty is something that is, it's easy to see, right? It's easy to point to, but it can be hard to describe. If you stand at the Grand Canyon and you look out, what are you seeing? You see beauty, right? If you look up in the night sky on a clear night and you see the stars, what are you seeing? You see beauty, right? Or the sun when it rises in the morning, you can point to it and you can say, that is beautiful, right? And I don't think many people are going to fight you on that. They say, yes, I agree. That's beauty. That's beautiful. But it can be a hard word to pin down. And so if you're playing this game and you get the word beauty, what's probably going to happen? you're probably going to uh, pull out the old um, blank plus a word um, trick, right? Where you're going to try to get people to guess the word beauty based off on what it's associated with just somehow else in the English language since it's hard to pin down. So you're going to say, you're going to get blank pageant or blank in the beast, right? So you're going to try to get people because it's connected to that, but it's a hard word to intrinsically describe on its own. And that's kind of what it's like with God's glory, right? It's a little bit tricky to pin down and describe. It's easy to see, it's easy to point to, but it's hard to describe. And when I give my best effort to this, when I describe it to my kids, right, I do my best to sum it up like this. I tell them God's glory is all the reasons that he's more awesome than anyone or anything else. That's what I tell them. And so then I tell them we live for God's glory, by doing our best to show people why God's more awesome than anyone or anything else, 
right? Kids, we want to show people why God is deserving of the attention, why God's deserving of the cheers, why God's deserving of the praise, why God's deserving of the glory. And of course, you can get more complicated than that. When I was researching this topic, um, I looked to a number of scholars and some scholars gave their best efforts at um, definitions of God's glory. And I just want to give you a few of them so you can kind of wrap your brain around it so you're, you're in the same ballpark as we talk about God's glory. One person said this, God is in a class by himself. He has infinite perfections, infinite greatness, and infinite worth. Another scholar said this, he said, God's glory is the magnificence, worth, loveliness, and grandeur of his many perfections. A third scholar said this, the glory of God is the beauty of his spirit. It's not an aesthetic beauty or a material beauty, but the beauty that emanates from his character, from all that he is. I'll give you one more from Jonathan Edwards. He says this, God had to respect himself to his last and highest end in this work because he is worthy in himself to be so, being infinitely the greatest and best of beings. All things else with regard to worthiness, importance, and excellence are perfectly as nothing in comparison of him. All that is ever spoken of in the scripture as an ultimate end of God's works is included in that one phrase, the glory of God. This is what we mean when we talk about the glory of God. And so where do we see God act for the sake of his glory? I'm very grateful you asked. I came prepared. Um, in Ezekiel 36, you can look at this with me. You, you see this in this verse. Ezekiel chapter 36, starting at 22. It says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations in which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. That verse is pretty clear, isn't it? It's a hard verse, but it's a pretty clear set of verses, right? Thus says the Lord God, it's not for your sake that I'm about to act, right? It's not for your sake that I'm about to save you, but it's for the sake of my holy name, right? And then down farther, all the nations will know that what? That I am the Lord, right? And just in case you missed it, in verse 32, he swings back and says, just so we're clear, it's not for your sake, that I will act, declares the Lord. Let that be known to you. God's saying very clearly, I want you to know why I act. I act for the sake of my 
glory. And this is not just found in one or two verses. This is the constant theme of a holy author throughout Scripture. Right? It's the ever-recurring motif of the all-sufficient composer. It's God over and over and over and over again telling you why he acts, telling you why he does things. Let's look at a few. We won't read all these, but just look at them. Ephesians chapter 1. If you know Ephesians chapter 1, you know that it talks about salvation. Why did God perform salvation? Why did he save us? Why did he save you? Look at what it says here. To the praise of his glorious grace. That was his reason for saving you. It was for his glory. Look again. So that we who were the first hope in Christ, what's that? (laughs) That we were saved, right? Might be to the praise of his what? Glory. And then in case you missed it, right? look at what it says in verse 13. When he heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Why did the Holy Spirit seal you in salvation? Why? To the praise of his glory. God saved us. Yes, he loves you. That's true. We're going to talk more about it next week. But he saved you ultimately for his glory. Look at Isaiah 43, verse 7. Everyone who is called by my name. What does it say? Whom I created. Why? For my glory. Why were you created? You were created, brothers and sisters, to glorify God. Look at Romans 9, right? Why did God create from the same lump of clay some vessels for wrath, some vessels for mercy? It was for his glory. Here's a hard one. We wrestle with this, don't we, when we read in Exodus. Why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? He says, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, this is God talking, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And what does it say? And the Egyptians shall know what's God's reason. They shall know that I am the Lord. God acts that people would know that he's God, that he's above everything, that he would get the glory. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power. So that my name, right, God's name and glory, they're connected so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. That's why God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God acts for the sake of his glory. Look at it in Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 14. You guys know you've read the Old Testament. What happened? The Israelites disobeyed God over and over and over again, don't they? Right? And then look what it says here. Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them in the wilderness to make a full end of them. God would have had every right to do that, wouldn't he? And yet why did he act? But I acted for the sake of my name. Right? Because he said, but I called them my children. I created a covenant with them. I created a promise. And I intended to keep it. But I'm keeping it not for their sake. They deserve to die. But for the sake of my glory, for the sake of my name. This is why I act. Why did God act in 1 Samuel 12? We don't talk enough about this. Remember when the Israelites created what is probably one of the greatest evils in history, where they wanted to replace God Most High as their king with a frail, fragile, sinful man. They said, God, get out of here. We don't want you. We want this as our king. God could have killed them right there. Deservedly so. Look, pray to your servants, the Lord your God, that we may not die. They realized what they did. But God didn't kill them. Why? For the Lord will not forsake his people. 
Why did he not forsake his people? Why did he act? For his great name's sake. God acts for the sake of his glory. What about this one? Why do we have Christmas? If you guys know me, you know I love Christmas. Um, If you don't know me, now you know. I love Christmas. Uh, My kids are already asking me when Christmas is. They're writing their Christmas lists already. Um, I don't know where they got that from. Um, It's very strange. Um, But, no, I'm kidding. I know where they got it from. It's from me. Um, Look at this verse. Look at what it says. It says, for I tell you that Christ became a servant. How did Christ become a servant? He came at Christmas. That's the start of that, right? To be a servant to the circumcised, to show God's truthfulness, right? To confirm God's character in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, right? To show God to be true to his word and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Why did Jesus come? He came that God would be glorified. That's why he came. One more for you, last one. What was on Jesus' mind when he went to the cross? Why did he ultimately do it? Yes, he came because he loved us. Yes, he went to the cross because he loved us. But look at what he says here. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it Again, what's on his mind as he went to the cross? That God would be glorified. That's his purpose. That's why he came. That's why he went to the cross. God loves everything. His, God loves his glory above everything else. We have to get our heads around that. And it's hard because we've been taught, a lot of us for a long time, that ultimately the gospel was about us. But the gospel is not about us. God doesn't act for our sake. Through God's actions, we benefit in so many ways. And we're going to talk about a bunch of those next week. But ultimately, God works for his glory and his glory alone. Right? Everything he is, he's all-powerful, he's eternal, he's all-knowing, he's gracious, he's full of mercy and love. Everything he does, he does ultimately in order that his glory would be magnified and the honor that's rightly due his name would be preserved. Because who else would it be appropriate for the glory to go to? Nobody. Only God is deserving of that glory. Anything else, if God were to give glory to something else, that would make him an idolater. He's the only one deserving of glory. This is why God acts in this way. This is what God delights in. He delights in his glory. And so what are the implications? What are the implications of this truth of who God is and why he does what he does? Here's the first implication. What if there were no implications for you? It's a serious question. God was asking me this this week. What if God's purpose for this truth ended right here? What if the sermon ended right here? This is a serious question. Would your soul be satisfied with the teaching from God's word as you learn more about who God is? Is that enough for you to learn more about your creator and your savior? Or do you need to walk out of here knowing there's something about me? It's right and good to want to know things about how God wants us to live. But do you just love God? 
right? Does your soul long to love God and know more about him? Is it like one of these beautiful couples who've been getting to know each other for 60 years and they're still learning things about each other and loving every moment of it? That's beautiful, right? Some of you have that. That's beautiful. Are we like that? Do we love that with God? Is being absolutely stunned by the beauty of the things that God does, right? Knowing that he does things for his glory, does that just fill you with awe and wonder and delight and praise? Does your soul say, yes, this is what it should be. God, I want you to have all the glory. There's no other place the glory should go. Or does our heart get backed up and say, no, I'm confused. I thought things were about me instead of God. It's hard. We are sinful people. John Piper says this. He says, why is it important to be stunned by the God-centeredness of God? Because many people are willing to be God-centered as long as they feel God is man-centered. It is a subtle danger. We may think we are centering our lives on God when we are really making him a means to self-esteem. It's tough, isn't it? it? That hits you right? Many people are willing to be God-centered as long as they feel God is man-centered. Is this you? Is this your heart? Because this really hit me when I was reading it. Um, I don't know about you, but it's a constant battle in my soul not to make Mark the center of everything. Like it's a fight every single day. And unfortunately, this bleeds into how I relate to God and how I can think about God. My pride is nasty. I don't know if it's anything like yours. And it's so real and it's a dogfight every single day. But I also know, and I believe you feel the same, that I don't want to be like the second half of that sentence. right? I don't want to only be God-centered if I think God is me-centered. I want to love God regardless. Knowing that he deserves to be God-centered. That that's the right way for him to act. It's not about me. I don't want to think I'm centering my life on God and really just using him to make myself feel better or to take things from him. I want to love God for God alone. Number two, um, small idols. Maddie and I were having a conversation, a little discussion, um, based off something that she heard from Jenny Allen um, on Instagram that convicted her. Maddie's my wife. Um, Jenny's story, um, in two minutes, went something like this. She was praying to God, um, and she told him, she said, God, I don't know what I'm holding on to, but I don't want to hold on to it. So would you show me what that is and help me to let it go? And she thought she was going to hear a voice from the sky saying, Jenny, please report to China, right? (laughs) She thought that that's what God might ask her to do. But instead, as she prayed that prayer, asking what she was holding on to, instead what she felt was tremendous conviction. Conviction for small things. Conviction for allowing the fear of people to affect her obedience to God. Conviction for all the small decisions she makes every single day that pushes her towards comfort instead of God's will. Conviction for generosity and adoption using what God had given her to live for God's glory. And she said, to be honest, in that moment, she felt it would have been easier to move to China. 
And as Maddie and I talked and we examined our own hearts around this issue, uh, this is basically the conclusion uh, we came to. We, we found for um, the reason that some, right, and at times is our hearts too, the reason that we can feel it'd be easier to move to China, right, rather than allow God to give up the small idols in our lives is because when we remove these big public idols from our lives, then we get a big side plate of glory on the side as well, Right? Because we've got this weird thing that goes on in the Christian world where we th- call these things small idols versus big idols. But I think really all that we're talking about is big idols are public and small idols are um, private. Right? There's no actual size to the idols, is there? The, the size is the same. But it's the implications on us that changes it. Right? And so you remember when Pastor Ben was talking about wearing masks in the summertime? I think the reason that we get good at wearing masks, the reason that we're good at cleaning up our exterior, the things that everybody else knows, we're happy to get rid of the big idols. Why? Because we get a big side plate of glory. Because we, when, when someone sees something, they're like, oh man, that person really changed that thing. God changed that thing in that person's life. But wow, look at how amazing that person is. Right? We, we get this glory when it's out in front of the public. And yet when, when there's nothing else to gain except God, why do we struggle to remove these small idols? I think that's the answer. I think our own hearts struggle to remove those small idols because we don't get any glory in that, is there? When the things that nobody else knows about but are still wrong and still sinful and still holding us back. We don't fight those with the same vigor. So I'm not saying don't fight public big sins. I'm not saying that. I'm saying fight every sin with the same vigor. Right? That's what we need to look at. Right? Because there's these big things. Like we can, we can look at moving to China, right? Giving up our comfort. No longer giving into drunkenness. Removing laziness. Very public things. Right? Those are good things to do. But what about not giving in to the fear of people? Right? Maybe that's going to be you coming up soon as we, we start talking about prayer groups again. And are you willing to pray in public? Or is there a fear of people? Or is there an element of comfort that you don't want to give up as you let other people into your lives to pray with them? Maybe those things will come close to you. What about killing that pornography addiction that nobody else knows about? Or giving generously but anonymously? Things that nobody else will see. You don't get glory, but you do get God, right? You get the favor of your heavenly father and you're made more like Jesus. Is that enough for you? That's the question. This is what God's been asking me. He's saying, Mark, am I enough for you? That's what he asked me this week. He said, are do you need to get pleasure by stealing my glory instead of getting pleasure from me alone? Right, because that's what happens, right? God does something in our life and we're like, God gets all the glory. But I'm just gonna tell you about all the stuff that I did as well, right? To get some of that glory, to take some of that pleasure away from God. Does our pleasure come from God and God alone? Or do we need a side plate of our own glory as well? Number three is prayer. Number three is prayer. When you pray, here's a question for you. What, on what do you stake the answer to your prayers? Right, basically in English that means, how do you know God's going to answer you? 
What's your confidence rooted in when you pray? Let's look at how some people prayed in the Bible. When Jeremiah prayed, what did he say? Though our iniquities testify against us, act, O Lord. Why? For your name's sake. What about Psalm 79? Help us, O God, of our salvation. Why? For the glory of your name. What about Daniel? Do you remember this famous prayer that Daniel prayed? Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake. He didn't say, God, we're really dying out here in Babylon. What did he say? He said, God, would you restore Israel for the sake of your name? For your own sake, would you act and move? That you would get glory. That's what these people stake their prayers on. They prayed that God would act, that God would move for the sake of his glory. Do you pray like that? Do you stake your prayers on those things? Let me give you one more. We know this, um, this verse well. If you've been a Christian for a while, it's the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Have you ever noticed how the Lord's Prayer starts? Right? Um, maybe you've done this before, and it's a good thing to do, like where you use the Lord's Prayer to pray through it, and we pray through all the different things. But I think sometimes we skip the first part because it's got the word hallowed in it, and that's weird, right? And we don't know what it means. So instead, we just ignore it. But here's what the word hallowed means. When it says, hallowed be your name, when that's what Jesus says, it means this. It means, holy be your name. And there's a connection between holiness and God's glory that I don't have time to go into, but you're just going to have to trust me. There's a connection. So what it means is, holy be your name. It means, set apart be your name. Glory be to your name. This is what Jesus is praying. And who's he praying to? He's praying to God. Right? So what's Jesus asking of his father? Jesus is petitioning God to glorify himself as God. He's petitioning God to act for the sake of his glory. When Jesus said, I want to teach you how to pray, what did he put at the start? He stuck his claim on why God was going to move and everything else on this list on what? On the glory of God. Hallowed be your name, God. God, would you glorify yourself? Would you act for your glory? That's what God did. So let's ask that question one more time. When you pray, and what will you stake the answer to your prayers? Right, and we ask the question, how do you know that God's gonna act for the sake of his glory? Right, because you, you, you don't just get to stick this on the end of any prayer, and then it's gonna come true, right? It's not, God, I'd really like a Lambo um, for your glory, right? Like, that's not how that works, right? But when we pair asking God for the things that he loves, for the things that he delights in, for the things that he desires, and then asking him to act for the sake of his glory, God chooses in his infinite wisdom chooses to move. And how do you know those things? How do you know what God delights in? How do you know what God loves? It's through his word, 
right? And so we have to, Christians, we have to love everything that God has called us to, everything that God has said is good for us, because your Bible reading is connected to your prayer life, and your prayer life is connected to your Bible reading. You don't just get to choose one or the other, right? When professional athletes train, they don't get to love nutrition and hate exercise, right? Or they don't get to love exercise and hate nutrition, right? What do they need? They need both to have a healthy body that will perform at a high level. It's what's good for them. And God has told us what is good for us, but we got to fight for all of it, not just one of it. And you're going to be predisposed. Maybe you really love to pray and it's harder to read God's word, or maybe it's really easy to read God's word, but it's harder to pray. Bless you for the thing that's easier. Fight for the thing that's harder. We need both together. Number four, the best way to be loved. When God loves himself the way we're talking about first, this is the best way for then us to be loved. And we're going to talk about that next week because I think this is one of the hardest things for us to wrap our head around. And there are some good questions after the first service, and a lot of them centered around this thing. Right? And so I knew that. I knew studying that that was going to be our question, and it's good. I appreciate your questions. I want your questions. Um, but just so you know, we're going to talk about that next week. You're going to say, I, I thought that God loved me. It doesn't seem selfish for God to love himself the most, but we're not supposed to be selfish. Right? Those are good questions, and we're going to answer those next week. But I just wanted you just to know that in advance. Number five, our ultimate purpose. Many of you know this verse. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God, right? This hangs in a lot of our homes, right? And rightly so. This is a really good thing that we talk about as Christians over and over and over again. And we should because this is our ultimate purpose, right? This is, what did God say? This is why we're created, right? To bring him what? Glory, that's why we were created. This is what we're called to do. But I wanted to start today, because I'm going to tell you this, you're going to, you're going to hear it all the time. I'm going to tell you, do these things for God's glory. But I wanted to start here, because I want you to know the why. I want you to know the why. Why do we do everything to the glory of God? Here's the answer. You ready for it? Because God does everything to the glory of God. That's why we do everything to the glory of God. That's why we're called to that as Christians. It's because God does that himself, as we've seen in his word, right? And we were created in his image, were we not, right? So we're created to delight in the things that he delights in most. We're created to do the things, um, to find the most joy in the things that he finds the most joy in. And what does he delight in the most? What does he find the most joy in? His glory. So how are you going to go find joy when life is hard, when life hurts? Where will you find joy? Where will you find delight? You're going to find delight in bringing God glory because that's what you were created to do. Yes, God cares. Yes, God will hold you. Hold those things tightly, but hold this as well. Remind yourself of that when life is hard. That if you want to find joy, if you want to find delight, you've got to do what God has called you to do. Bring glory to him. And those things, I guarantee you, you will find joy and find delight. 
And I want to leave you with this as we close. I want to leave you with this final thought. Um, this is something that I learned this week. And so I just want to tell you this, um, just so you know it. Um, don't think that when I get up here, it's like, oh, yeah, Mark knew all this stuff for 25 years. It's like, no, Mark learned some of this stuff on Thursday, right? And so this is one of these things that Mark learned on Thursday, okay? Um, so just know that as I stand up here, don't feel like, oh, yeah, he's got it all together. He knows all these things. No, it's a tremendous blessing to have the privilege to study God's word and to learn, and I love to come back and share that with you. And something that I learned this week that was a real encouragement to my heart and my soul, um, because it was never explained to me this way, but as I prayed about it and thought about it, I said, this is absolutely true. Are you ready for this? Here's what it is. The Holy Spirit's purpose. The role of the Holy Spirit is to burn in me and burn in you what he has been burning with for all of eternity, God's love for God. That's his purpose. That's the role of the Holy Spirit in a nutshell. Let me say it one more time so you don't miss it. The role of the Holy Spirit is to burn in me and burn in you as Christians what he has been burning with for all of eternity, God's love for God. Let me give you a couple of examples when the Holy Spirit helps you to understand God's word, right? We know that's one of the things that he does. When he does that, what is that doing? That's burning in you a love for God more as you learn more about who he is. When the Holy Spirit guides you towards obedience and brings conviction in your life because of sin, what's he doing? He's burning in you a love for God, right? That you would love God more than your sin. That you would love obedience more than sin. That's what he's doing. And you can go down the list. I encourage you, do it at night when you can't sleep tonight. Go down the list of things that you know the Holy Spirit does and test it against this. His role is to burn in us a love for God that he has been burning with for all of eternity. So I want to ask you this question. Are you allowing the Spirit to do his work, his ultimate work? Are you allowing him to do that in your life? Are you asking him? Are you asking him to do this in your life? Do you ask him, God, hey, burn in me a love for God like I've never known before? Are you doing that? Or do we use the Holy Spirit as a genie, right? Some kind of Amazon delivery, right? Where it's like, I, I quick need some wisdom. Okay, Holy Spirit, I need your help for a second. Oh, I quick need some comfort. Holy Spirit, come here, right? He does give wisdom. He does give comfort. Those are beautiful things. But does your heart burn, and not in a perfect line, right? Because we're sinful and life is hard, right? So it, it doesn't go like that. Anyone who tells you that, they're lying. They're sinning, right? But do you burn more for God? Can you look over the past five years and say, my heart, my soul burns more for the love of God now than it did five years ago? If you can say, yes, praise God, the Spirit's working in your life. And if not, I would encourage you to get on your knees and pray. And if that's you, get on your knees and pray, right? That the next five years would be even greater, right? And that you wouldn't be prideful and fall because it's so easy for us to be us centered, isn't it? Are we learning from the one whose chief end, whose greatest delight is his own glory and a love for himself? Let's pray. God, thank you for these wonderful people. And I pray that we truly would stand in awe of you this morning. 
God, I pray that you would help us to wrap our minds around this truth that is um, difficult and yet so amazing. Lord, and knowing that there's nowhere else that it, we would rather have it be. There's no one else that we would rather have the glory go to. God, and we truly know that you, um, the best way to be loved is by you loving us out of this love that you love in yourself. God, I pray that we would love your word. I pray that we would be people of prayer. I pray that we would be people that hold fast to the word of truth. God, would we love knowing more about you. God, and would you help us in all these implications that as, as we study the number of different ones, I don't know what it is for each person here, but is there something that your spirit would work mightily in their heart? God, a sin that they need, that needs to be killed, would you kill it in their life? Some wrong thinking about who God is, would you help to correct that in their mind? Maybe it's um, apathy or just a coldness like Rebecca talked about where they were at. Would you, would you instead st start a fire? Even if it starts small, would you kindle it, blow on it tenderly, that it would fan into flame a love for God um, beyond anything that people have ever experienced before. God, if we want to love you as a church above everything else, would you show us how to love each other well? Would you show us how to love your community well? Would you show us how to love you well? God, we love you so much. We're so grateful for you, and we pray that you would um, be with us now. God, be with us tonight as well. Lord, we're excited for what you are doing in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.